Welcome to His Life Revealed with Pastor Todd Granger of His Life Fellowship in San Antonio, Texas. We're glad you've chosen to join us today. Our passion at His Life Ministries is to help believers know Him and show Him. So we keep it simple. It's just about Jesus. Our prayer is that the Holy Spirit will make His truth plain to you so you can walk in freedom and enjoy the life of union that God has designed for you to live. And now, here's Pastor Todd. Paul, we're talking about Paul because we're in 2 Corinthians, moving from chapter 3 to chapter 4. And as we had discussed before, Paul had been going through a very difficult time in his life. A church that he had literally poured himself into for over two years, discipled, taught. A church that he had founded and formed was going through all kinds of carnality. That was a threat to Paul. There were a lot of things that were weighing upon Paul. And as we look at this letter in, in 2 Corinthians, it's a very personal letter. There was no way Paul could find peace in his circumstances. There was no way that Paul could find peace in the threats that were coming against him and in the betrayal of the very people that he had ministered to. He wouldn't find peace in those things. How would he find the strength to go on? As I said, it was a very personal letter for Paul and one of the most difficult days of his ministry. The Corinthian fellowship had grieved him and wounded him with their carnality and their rejection of the truth. They had embraced all manner of sin, wickedness, and had rejected much of what Paul had been preaching for the last two years. And Paul writes 1 Corinthians, which we studied, and he deals with them concerning their immorality, their division, their incest, the lawsuits between them, the divisions, and the desecration of the Lord's table. He deals with all of that. Just I'm having to deal with the decoration. And unfortunately, whatever repentance and correction that was affected by this letter was soon to be countered by the arrival of false teachers, Judaizers. And these false teachers were diligently working to discredit Paul, to slander Paul. They had all kinds of things. They were, they were discrediting him and, and talking against his character. They attacked his character. They indicated that Paul was in the ministry for money, that he was in it for personal gain, that he was looking to manipulate and use them. They said that he was, he was really a poor speaker. He wasn't a very dynamic speaker. He didn't keep the people's attention. He had a lot of problems. Unoppressive, a weak individual. In the midst of all of this, as we have said before, Paul travels to Macedonia by way of Troas to find Titus who was then returning from Corinth after having delivered a very strident letter, a corrective letter that Paul had written earlier. And Paul was very concerned about the response of the Corinthians. you got to understand, again, this is a father's heart, and we really can say it is the father's heart for these people that he had ministered to. He loved them. And the thought that he had to correct them was not easy. It, It grieved him a bit. But, you know... This is not the works of Paul. What's being written here is literally the written account of the obedient hearts of those who were walking in sync with the Spirit of God. And they're writing what the Spirit of God has spoken to them. 
So as we talk about Paul and his love for his people, we talk about Paul and his, his hurt over their carnality, you're seeing the heart of the Father. He's grieved. He wants to know how they received this letter, if it, if it brought about any correction, which we find that it had. But Paul was weary. He was tired. He was troubled. What keeps this man going? In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, we've read it before, he writes, For even when we arrived in Macedonia, our bodies had no ease or rest. We were oppressed in every way and afflicted at every turn, fighting and contentions without, dread and fears within us. No rest within or without. Accused by his enemies and companions alike for being a failure in a ministry. The very thing he'd given his life to. What fears and doubts would have assaulted the man, a soul of a man that was in this circumstance? In Second Corinthians chapter 6, he no doubt was very troubled. And we know some of the history of Paul. We know what he endured and what he went through. It's written t- three times. He writes, three times I have been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned three times. I have been aboard a shipwreck at sea. A whole night and a day I spent adrift on the deep. Many times on journeys exposed to perils from rivers, perils from bandits, perils from my, from my own nation, perils from the Gentiles, perils in the city, perils in the desert, perils in the, in the sea, perils from those passing, posing as believers, but destitute of Christian knowledge and piety, in toil and hardship watching over often through sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, frequently driven to fasting by want, in cold and exposure and lack of clothing. What a life. What a ministry. How many of you feel called to the ministry right now? Huh? The Jews hated him and pursued him with a vengeance. The Gentiles saw him as a fool and a troublemaker and rejected him. What kept Paul going? How did he deal with the discouragement, doubt, and fear? Why didn't he, like so many, abandon the ministry? In this letter, we see Paul at his lowest and his weakest, yet he never quits. He wrote the majority of the New Testament and was God's instrument to articulate the new covenant. He was mightily used of God. In these verses, we're going to read Paul's response to the accusation of these false teachers in Corinth. And again, we ask ourselves the question, how did he keep going? There was a different context he was obviously living to than the one that everybody else saw around him. There was something more dear to him than the comforts of this world, even the affections of men. Let's go back to where we left off last week, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, And all of us, this is Paul writing through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, And all of us, as with unveiled faces, because we continue to behold in the word of God, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are consistently being transfigured into his very own image, in ever-increasing splendor, and from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit." I can't even imagine the depth that's in this verse. This is talking about the finished work of Christ. This is talking about the veil 
of separation, everything that has separated us from the, the presence of God himself being removed. The reflection of the glory of God in the face of Christ himself. It is greater glory and an unfading glory as he compared it earlier to Moses whose glory was a, was a byproduct of him standing in the presence of God yet faded away. He put the veil to cover himself. This is a glory that's never faded because it's reflected in the face of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The finished work of Christ has removed the veil, the separation. The new covenant has made us new with minds that were made to comprehend the love and wisdom of God, with hearts that are sensitive and intimate with Christ's heart. We've been given so much more than salvation for heaven. We've literally been remade and reborn into body, into a person that was made for him, made to know him, made to comprehend his desires for us. I didn't say we could comprehend the whole of God. Nobody can. He wouldn't be God otherwise. But his purposes in our life, his working, his desire for us. But the greatest comprehension for us is his love. His great love for us. His unyielding and unconditional love for us. The God who holds all things together by the word of his power has declared that we are his and we are his beloved. Now you know what? It took the work of Christ in you for you to be able to know and recognize that. It took God giving you the new creation work for you to be able to see and know and understand it. And here it is. This is, this is what the context of what we're talking about. That God has given you the capacity to know a context that is so much greater than the threats. And even, yes, even the pleasures of this world. He's given you eyes to see him and ears to hear him. He has given you access, not only access, but permanent residence in his presence. He's given you a sensitivity to his love. He's given you a comprehension of his wisdom. He's given you an insight to his desire and his, his crafting of who you are. Do we even begin to understand and comprehend how much greater is the gift of Christ's life in us than the gift of life in this body, than the things of this world? Paul is talking about a whole con different context for living. We can now see with spiritual eyes of faith and behold Christ, the Word with a capital W, the very revelation of God. We begin our spiritual life with the revelation of Christ. And because of the new birth, we are in union with his spirit. And our God may be personally and intimately known by you. Is there any greater pursuit other than to personally and intimately know him? Is there any greater pursuit? Is the pursuit of peace and comfort greater than the pursuit of knowing your God intimately? Is the pursuit of wealth greater than the pursuit of knowing your God intimately? I don't know that there is. Paul didn't seem to think so. Philippians 3.10, that I may know him. We begin our spiritual life that way. And because of the new birth, we are in union with his spirit and our God may be personally and intimately known. God is our focus. 
Our Christian life is about experiencing and knowing the glory of our God as it is revealed through Christ. It began that way, and it is the beginning of how we live. It is the will of God that we live in this context. John chapter 6, verse 40. For this is my Father's will and his purpose. This is Jesus speaking. That everyone who sees the Son, capital S, and believes and clings to and trusts in and relies on him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up from the dead at the last day. We begin by seeing and believing. And we live by seeing and believing. We live this life by faith. We are being transformed as we behold him. That's what that verse says. Chapter 3, verse 18. We are being transformed as we behold him. We are learning to express and live out of the truth of our spiritual union by faith. As we live and walk with our eyes, our spiritual eyes, our inner focus upon him. Now, I know most of you. I also know that most of you are Christians. And I could not convince you, if I wanted to, that you didn't have an encounter with Christ. But some of you may have believed that the light has grown dim. And that the, your encounter with Christ was just to set you on a path to heaven. That what I'm talking about now is more of an ethereal way of living. I'm telling you that your first encounter with Christ is the beginning of the way you live in his presence. That whether or not you feel it, whether or not you recognize it in your surroundings, is not the point. What is important is that you understand and know the truth of it, that Christ is at the center of your being, that he is your life, that you were made for him, and that you walk by faith in knowing him, that the purpose of your living upon this planet, that your time here on earth is to be spent in going from glory to glory, recognizing him in his revelation, in the way you live, in the, in the things around you, in the ministry of the people's lives, you come in contact with that is the reality of who you are as Christians if we try to move it and shape it into something that is man-centered and worldly we will put the veil before our eyes and we will not see the truth of the spiritual work that he has done in us that we are no longer bodies we are spirits with a body there's a greater context and a greater reality for us to live from and to live to. This is not ethereal people. This is fact. We live this by faith. We begin by seeing and believing. We live that way. Hebrews 12.2 says, it's one of my favorite verses. I could do a sermon just on this. Looking away from all that will distract us to Jesus, who is the leader and the source of our faith, giving the first incentive for our belief, and is also its finisher, bringing it to maturity and perfection. He, for the joy of obtaining the prize that was set before him, endured the cross, despising and ignoring the shame, 
and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We have to look away from the things that distract us. It's a choice. I told my family, I read a meme that said, hey, listen, I'm going to invite some people over and put a movie on so we can all sit around and look at our phones. This is the age of distraction, isn't it? We've got all manner of things to look at and distract ourselves with. And let me tell you something. The enemy can't change what Christ has done in you. He can only distract you from what Christ has done in you. He can only distract you from who you are, from the very presence of Christ himself. And this is what Paul's talking about. He says, I keep my focus on him. I keep my eyes on him. What could distract him? Well, how about hostile people that are trying to take his life? How about accusers who would condemn his ministry? How about false teachers? How about carnality of the brethren? How about a church that rejects him? Do you think that's enough to distract you? And Paul says, no, I'm looking away from all that would distract me. And I am keeping my focus on the one who called me, the one who is my life, the one who sustains me. Because Paul recognized this reality. It wasn't the absence of trouble that sustained him. It wasn't the great diet that he was on that sustained him. It wasn't the ship that floated that kept him afloat. It wasn't friendly people that kept the ugly people away. It wasn't a success ministry that gave him some sense of accomplishment. It was none of these things. It was literally the life and calling of Christ within him. And he would not look away. Because if I look away to the ministry and the people reject me, I'm done. If I look away to my health and my health fails me, I'm done. If I look away to the people I love and the people I love walk away from me, I'm done. Well, how can I keep going? I walk in the one who gave me life. I live for the one who's at the center of my being. I will not be distracted. I will not look away. And get this. People think, I've got to get more faith before I can live like that. It says right there. It says, looking away from all that will distract to Jesus, who is the leader and the source of our faith. I think of the man who said, Lord, I believe and help my unbelief. How often have I said that? I don't always feel these things. But I know in the center of my being the truth of them. Am I going to look to my emotions? Am I like the apostles going to look to my understanding? Am I going to lock myself behind closed doors? Or am I going to embrace the truth of his presence? So that in the midst of all those things that would distract me, I hear his voice say, peace. Peace to you, Paul. But my body's troubled and weak, Lord. Peace to you, Paul. But the people rage against me. Peace to you, Paul. Your body's not you. The people are not you. The ministry is not you. Peace to you, Paul. And as I begin to look at him, and the things of this world grow strangely dim, in the light, 
of His glory and grace. Yeah, He endured the cross. Christ endured the cross. He despised and ignored the shame. We have to look away. It's a choice. It's a discipline. We look to Jesus who inspires us to believe in faith. His life inspires us. And the thing about Jesus is he never looks away. He's got the perfect poker face. He stares into the the center of us and he sees all that God holds precious. He doesn't have anything he wants to look away from. He removed all of that. You ever get the feeling that Christ doesn't want to look at you? That's a lie. It's a lie. If it's true, then he didn't finish the cross. His work wasn't finished. He never looks away. He ignored the shaming of his humanity. And there was no, you could no more shame a person's humanity than the way he was shamed. He ignored it. He endured the suffering inflicted on his body. But he would not look away from the Father or the path of obedience. His body wavered. In fact, his body died. His soul wavered. He would not look away. He went forward in obedience. Now, when Paul, Paul's veil was lifted to see Jesus on the Damascus road, he would not look away. He would ignore the shaming of his humanity. He would endure the suffering inflicted on his body. You see, Jesus was Paul's focus. That's the truth of Paul's life. And as the minister of the new covenant, he declares that we can behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus. We no longer need a veil. We need no covering. Paul declares it twice, once in chapter 3, verse 18, and then in chapter 4, verse 6. The new covenant is clear. An unobstructed view of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. We are no longer veiled by our nature. You were once veiled because you were born in sin. You're no longer a child of sin. The Christian can only be veiled by unbelief and distraction. It's a veil that we put on so that we cannot see the truth of our Lord. We can only be veiled by living to the flesh. It is that gaze that transforms us, that gaze upon Jesus that transforms us and strengthens our faith. Now the question is, are we being continually transformed or conformed to this world? That's a choice. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Paul's continuing and he writes, Therefore, since we do hold and engage in this ministry by the mercy of God, granting us favor, benefits, opportunities, and especially salvation... We do not get discouraged, spiritless, and despondent with fear, or become faint with weariness and exhaustion. What ministry? Well, the ministry of the new covenant, the truth of the new creation. He says, that's our ministry, that's our privilege. We've been engaged in this ministry by the mercy of God. God has made us for this ministry by his mercy. You see, Paul didn't try to become something. 
Paul wasn't trying to grow in his understanding through education. He did that in Judaism. Paul literally was remade, reborn into the truth of this ministry. And you know what the ministry is? It's a real simple thing. The ministry of Christ is consistent. The ministry of Christ to dispel darkness, to take away sin, to drop the chains of the captives, to defeat captivity in the lives of believers, to literally bring people forward in truth, to move them from beyond trying to become to who they are in Christ. The ministry of Christ is in the person of Christ, and it is being manifest in the yielded believer. Not all called to preach, but we're all called to minister. And he says, that is what we were made for. Thank you for joining us for His Life Revealed with Pastor Todd Granger. This program is the radio ministry of His Life Fellowship in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to know more about us, visit us on the web at hislifeministries.org or on Facebook at His Life Fellowship. We would love to have you join us for worship. We meet on Saturdays at 5 p.m. at 1307 Blanco Woods at the corner of Blanco Road and Blanco Woods just inside Loop 1604. Also, if you would like to help support this ministry, you can send your tax-deductible donation to His Life Ministries, P.O. Box 1894, Bernie, Texas, 78006.